we're, we're working. I'm a work in progress. Have, have you ever gone through a really difficult, painful season uh, of life, hardship, uh, pain? I think all of us have. It's a common saying that we're either in the midst of a trial, we're coming out of a trial, or we're about to go into a trial. Jesus said the rain falls on the just and the unjust, right? So whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, hardship, trial, difficulties are going to come our way. The question is, when the hardship comes, how do you respond on July the 30th, uh, 1967, uh, Johnny was swimming in the Chesapeake Bay. Misjudging the depth of the water, she dove headfirst, cracked her vertebrae, and became a quadriplegic. Johnny Eric Sintato would be confined to a wheelchair and paralyzed from the shoulders down. In the early days after her injury, she said this, Bitterness was a temptation for me in the early days of my paralysis. Deep inside, I knew it was wrong, but I justified myself by saying, surely God won't mind if I let off a little steam now and then. After all, I am paralyzed. But as many of us have learned, indulging in bitterness leads us down a path to even more despair and bitterness. Sometimes we go through pain and seasons of deep suffering, and it is a horrible experience. Maybe you're going through that now. Maybe you're in the midst of a trial that is just so difficult to deal with. Maybe today you're dealing with just a deep level of anxiety or depression. You feel lonely, left out. You're walking through a season where you just feel defeated or just plain exhausted. You see, one of the arrows of the lies that the enemy will fire at you is to tell you you're the only one dealing with that. You're the only one who's struggling with one particular sin. The enemy will lie to you to make you think that you're the only one who's struggling in life right now. Satan is a liar, the father of lies. I want you to hear me today. You're not the only one who's struggling. You're not the only one who's going through pain. You're not the only one in this room who feels the stress of life or the self-inflicted pressure to be perfect or the deep sadness of losing someone you love. Even on a day like today in which we rightly honor our moms. But Mother's Day can be a very painful day for some because they had to bury their mom or for some they, they didn't have a mom who loved them or cared for them. Or for some who desire to become a mom, but for whatever reason, they can't. I want you to hear me today. God loves you so much. And He is faithful. He draws near to the brokenhearted. He is the one who is tender with you and faithful. He is the God of all comfort who cares so deeply for you. But I also want you to know He is the sovereign one who is working in through and around your pain to accomplish something bigger than you can see. And what we're going to see this morning is God's greater purpose to display His redeeming love through the pain of a widow. That God will display the power of His gospel 
through those who are going through suffering. And that is what we see in the book of Ruth. Let me show you. Grab your Bible. Turn with me to Ruth chapter 1. If you don't know where that is, that's okay. Just grab your Bible, turn to the table of contents in the very front of your Bible. It's in the Old Testament. Just look for the word Ruth, the name Ruth, and look for that page number, and you can jump in right there with us in chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The book of Ruth is arguably one of the greatest short stories ever written. It's the shortest Old Testament book. It takes less than 15 minutes to read, but a lifetime to mine the depths of its riches. If Ruth was a movie, the picture would begin with a refugee family fleeing their home, experiencing famine, sadness, and despair. And that's where we pick up in Ruth chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. And the scripture says this, During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem and Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about ten years, both Malan and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. The plot of Ruth is like a labyrinth of plot twists that reveal rich gospel truths at every turn of the page. For our time together, I want to give you several words that start with the letter B that describe what's happening here in the text. The first thing I want you to notice is the bedlam and bitterness. The bedlam and bitterness. The story begins, verse 1, during the time of the judges. The people of God were in the promised land, but they were spiritually and morally bankrupt. What you see throughout the book of Judges is 400 years of what's called the cycle of apostasy. In essence, the people of God, they love God, they worship Him, they follow Him. But then they are introduced to other gods, and they turn their hearts away from the Lord. They get involved in spiritual and moral corruption and turn their hearts away from the Lord. God loves His people and refuses to let us sin successfully. So we see where God brings judgment upon His people through a neighboring nation that will come and attack, and, uh, attack His people. They then cry out to the Lord for salvation. So God raises up a judge, a savior, who comes and rescues them from that attacking enemy. They turn their hearts back to the Lord and they begin worshiping him again until they follow after other gods. And over and over and over, this cycle of apostasy we see throughout the book of Judges. That's the season that we find the book of Ruth. In fact, if you want to know a, a kind of a snapshot of what all this is look like, this looks like, turn back one page to the end of Judges. In Judges 21, verse 25. The very last sentence of the book of Judges says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to them. There was no law and order. 
Everyone did what they wanted to. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The people were spiritually and morally, morally bankrupt. It was bedlam. It was absolute chaos. And today, you and I find ourselves in a culture that is very similar to the book of Judges. We live among a people who are spiritually and morally bankrupt. People who do what's right in their own eyes. We live in a world that rejects truth, that sexual perversion is pervasive, and people think they can do whatever they want without consequences or accountability. But may I say to you that it's against the dark backdrop of a cultural anarchy that the light of God shines the brightest. In a world that is dark, decaying, and dying, we are a people full of love and grace and truth. That as the world around us is getting darker and darker, dark, darker and darker, what an opportunity that we have as followers of Jesus to shine the light of Jesus, to show the love of Christ, to show that we are a winsome people who've been changed by Jesus, that we're overwhelmed with his love, and that love and joy overflows out of us into the people around us. Like a jeweler who lays out diamonds against the backdrop of black velvet. The people of God sparkle like diamonds against the dark backdrop of a world in chaos. I'll say it like this of World War II Holocaust survivor, Corey Tinboom. She said, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. If you look at God, you'll be at rest. Famine has struck the promised land. So Elimelech leads his wife and two sons, verse 2, to Moab. They go to the opposite side of the Dead Sea. They're refugees looking for food. And while they're in Moab, tragedy strikes. Elimelech dies. Naomi becomes a widow. She has her two sons who marry Moabite women, but then both of her sons die. Naomi finds herself in a foreign land that's not her home with a dead husband and two dead sons. Bitterness sets in. Her lot in life has been ruined. The people she loved the most, the people who would provide for her and protect her, are now gone. Naomi gets word that Bethlehem has food again, and after being gone for a decade, she begins making her way back towards home. As she sets out, she urges her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, to, to return to their families in Moab, to go back, to return, to go find husbands that will care for them because she can't. She's a widow. She doesn't have social security. She doesn't have Medicare. She doesn't have any way to provide for these women. And through great grief and weeping, Orpah returns back. But then we see Ruth. She stays. Through great grief and weeping, she stays. And like Simon Peter at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16, where he makes the great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, we see here in verse 16 where Ruth makes her great confession. She tells Naomi, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Ruth declares her steadfast 
faith in the Lord God and her allegiance to her mother-in-law. She is abandoning the gods of her ancestors. She's walking away from her family. She's walking away from her roots. She's walking away from everything that's familiar to follow the Lord. This is Ruth's Romans 10 moment where she's calling on the name of the Lord. She is publicly turning her back on Moab and the gods of her ancestors, and she's declaring her faith in Yahweh. She's committing her life to follow Him and to serve His people for the rest of her life. Question, have you made the same decision? Have you come to the point in time in your life in which you have turned your back on your old way of life? You're turning your back on the gods of your past. You're turning away from the gods of this world. And you're committing your heart and your life to the Lord God and serving His people. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 10. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Hear me on this. Jesus demands first place in your heart and life. And hear me, even on a day like Mother's Day, family is a good gift from God, but family is not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. He is everything. And if you're going to follow Jesus, He has to be first place. He will not play second fiddle. He will not sit second chair to someone else. Jesus demands first place. You cannot give it to your husband. You cannot give that to your wife. You cannot give that to your children or to your grandchildren or even for the sake of your own life. Jesus alone has first place in the hearts of His people. But you've got to count the cost. Ruth counted the cost. And she believed that serving the Lord and His people in the midst of hardship and poverty and uncertainty was of greater value than going back to her old family and her old gods, her old way of life. Yesterday, I was meditating on this decision that she made here, and it reminded me of Moses. We remember the story in which he was placed into a basket by his family to protect him from being slaughtered by the Egyptians. He works his way down the Nile, ends up in the home of Pharaoh, and he's raised up in the palace of the most powerful men in all the world. Hebrews 11 says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking forward to a reward that was coming. You see, following the Lord is costly, but it's worth it. For Ruth, she counted the cost. She was leaving the potential Marriage to a husband, family who would protect her, a culture she was familiar with, food, language, everything that was normal for her. And she left it all behind for the Lord God, for allegiance to her mother-in-law. See, obedience to God is harder than going with the stream of the world around you. All right? The world is going one direction. 
Faithfulness to Jesus means you have to go the opposite direction. To follow Christ, it's difficult to swim upstream. It's not popular to stand firm for Christ. To hold fast to what He says is true. Orpah returned and went with the grain, with the stream of where everybody else was going. She went back to what's familiar. But here's Ruth. She didn't know that there would one day be a book named after her. She didn't know that through her would come a king. But what we see is faithfulness to the Lord, trusting Him when you don't know what the future holds. Banking your soul upon who the Lord is and saying, God, I commit my life to you regardless of what it costs me. And so what we say, Jesus, you are worth it. Jesus, you are greater than any shiny, empty, temporary God of this world. As for Naomi, tears have been her food. Grief has gripped her heart and life. When she and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem, it's like a homecoming parade. The people welcome her. They greet her. Verse 20, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made me bitter. Do you find yourself there today? Do you feel right now the pain of loss, of grief, even anxiety? You're not sure if you can go on? You're kind of like Naomi here who's nicknamed herself bitter because of her suffering. You see, Naomi did not know what God had in store for her. Hear me on this. Pain often skews our view of God's sovereign purposes in our life. If you're walking through pain right now, I know it's difficult. It's painful. And your view of God may even feel like you can't see Him rightly or feel Him for who He is. You're struggling in the midst of this. May I say to you, do not give up. God is still on His throne. And the pen is still in the hand of the divine author. And He is still writing a story with your life. Don't you dare give up. You keep your eyes fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. As you walk through your pain and suffering, you hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ because He's holding fast to you. You keep trusting Him. You keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus. And when you face bedlam and when you feel the bitterness, declare by faith the words of Job, though He slay me, yet will I hope in Him. I love how chapter 1 concludes. It's like light shining through a cracked door of a dark room. There's a glimmer of hope. Look at verse 22. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. God is giving a clue that the plot is about to change. Which leads to our next set of words that start with the letter B. The barley and Boaz. The author introduces a new character into the narrative. Chapter 2, verse 1. A man of noble character. A man of the family of Elimelech. A man named Boaz. Now that's important. We can't forget that. Well, as Ruth... As for her, she goes out to work the fields to gather grain for her and Naomi. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2. She happened. <laughs> I love that word. She happened. 
to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. Happens. Ha! You're good Bible students. You know there's no such thing as happenstance. There's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as a fluke. It's all under God's providential rule and reign. God rules over every detail, circumstance, and event. Question, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? He knows. He sees. He orchestrates. He ordains. And we can see here that you can sleep well at night with your head resting on the pillow of God's providence. He's got you. And he's got your children. And he's got your future. He's got the whole world in his hands. We sang it in preschool. It's still true. Ruth just happens to work in the fields of a man named Boaz, a man who is related to her dead father-in-law. Boaz, he catches a glimpse of Ruth, and he likes this young lass. He has an eye on this girl. He tells her, don't go to any other barley field. You stay in my field. We're going to protect you. We're going to provide for you. You're one of us. Take whatever you want, whatever you need for you and for your mother-in-law. Well, Ruth gets home that night after her first day on the job with a trunk full of groceries. And Naomi asks, where did you work today? Ruth tells her, I worked in the field of a man named Boaz. It's like you can hear the voice of Naomi playing matchmaker here. Ah, Boaz. He's a nice boy. There it is. <laughs> That's a lad that you need to get to know. Look at verse 20. Naomi tells Ruth, the man is a close relative. He's one of our family redeemers. Now, what is a family redeemer? Okay, a family redeemer, a, a kinsman redeemer. Same thing. It's a male relative who's responsible for preserving the family name and land. I'll say that again. It's a male relative who is responsible for preserving the family name and land. Now, he can do this, according to the Old Testament, in a couple of ways. He can buy back land that was sold due to paying a debt, Leviticus 25. Or he can marry the widow of a dead relative, Deuteronomy 25. And if a relative is in danger or in need, uh, if there's a family redeemer is needed to step up to deliver, to rescue, to redeem, to save. And as we're going to see in chapter 4, Boaz does both for Ruth. He buys her estate and he takes her as his bride. We see throughout the Old Testament, however, don't miss this, that the Lord is Israel's deliverer, rescuer, and redeemer. When Daniel was in the lion's den, King Darius declared this after he was saved. Uh, he says of the Lord, He rescues and delivers. 
He performed signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth, for he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. That's the Lord our God. He is a rescuer, a redeemer. He rescues and cares for his people. The prophet Ezekiel pointed forward to a future day when the Lord would rescue his people. In Ezekiel 34, he says, As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Yahweh is Israel's redeemer who promises, I will defend you. And I will rescue you. I will vindicate you. And at great cost to himself, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, purchases Ruth to bring her into his family. Who does that sound like? You see, Jesus is the true and greater kinsman redeemer who voluntarily paid the price for our redemption and takes the church as his beloved bride. Sin has made us weak and needy. Sin has put you and I in danger. We need a savior, someone who can rescue us out of trouble. Well, we need a a family redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. Hebrews 2.11, Jesus is our brother. He's not ashamed to call you his brother, his sister. He is our kinsman redeemer who joyfully, willingly, voluntarily gave his life for you at the cross. He paid the price for your redemption, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood. That you have been purchased by your kinsman redeemer, your family redeemer, your brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, who rescues you out of trouble, rescues you out of widowhood and orphanhood. He is the one who rescues his people and he does it through the cross. And through his shed blood, Jesus brings you back into his own family gives you a family name, promises you an inheritance, says you belong to me now, now and forever. You're marked with me. The Holy Spirit has been sealed within you. You are permanently kept in the omnipotent grip of Jesus. You're in his family. And you've been brought into this family through the gospel. That Jesus is the true and greater kinsman redeemer who makes us himself. So now, as those who have been purchased, as those who have been redeemed, as those who have been rescued by Jesus, now we get to go and do the same for others, right? As those who have been protected, we now go and protect others. As those who have been provided for by God, we now go and we provide for others. As those who have been defended by King Jesus, we now go and defend others. As those who have been rescued by King Jesus, we go and rescue others. We get to be ambassadors for Christ who represent Jesus in a world that is in desperate need of seeing what does the gospel look like. 
The gospel looks like men and women who are daily denying themselves, picking up their cross, following Jesus, and putting the needs of others before themselves. That we are a people who rescue and care for orphans and widows in their distress. Why? Because God first rescued and protected us in the gospel. That the gospel motivates our obedience. That we are a people who get to follow in step with the Lord Jesus who has rescued us through the gospel. The gospel motivates our obedience to the Lord. Say it like this. Do I have to obey the Lord? No. You get to obey the Lord. God's changed our hearts We're not talking about a dead religion. We're talking about a living relationship with the living God who calls you to walk with Him and to represent Him in a world that's in desperate need of His love and grace. The third set of words that start with the letter B. We see the blessing. A bride and a baby boy. Chapter 4 begins with Boaz gathering town elders. He invites a family redeemer closer than him to buy the land and to marry Ruth. The man refuses, which now opens the door for Boaz. You see, Boaz was the only one who was willing and able to redeem Ruth. Now, don't miss that. So too was Jesus. He was willing and he was able to redeem you. He was under no obligation Jesus did not have to redeem us. He could have left us in our just condemnation, but Jesus gladly volunteered. He pays the price for our redemption by giving his life for us at the cross. And look what happens. Look at verse 13. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. What started out as death in Moab is now ending with new life in Bethlehem. What started with bitterness now ends in blessedness. For this baby would grow up and have a son and name him Jesse. And then he would grow up and have a son and name him David. The future king of Israel came through the lineage of Boaz And Ruth, when Naomi was bitter in her anguish in the deserts of Moab, little did she know that she was a matriarch of royalty. Little did she know that there was a coming king in her family. While she was sad and brokenhearted, God was working behind the scenes to accomplish his greater purposes. And as you walk through your hardship, as you feel the sharp point of suffering and pain, please know God is working in ways you can't see. He has not given up on you. And he's writing a story that you can't see the big picture yet. The story is not done. You can't see it from your perspective. So you keep trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know so many of you are walking through pain. As your pastor, I want you to know, I feel your pain with you. I pray so hard for you. Because the anguish that you walk through, and that's just the stuff I know about. 
But I want you this morning, I want you to behold that God knows exactly what you're going through and he enters into it. And here we see in the book of Ruth, he's showing you how he's providentially working in and through pain to accomplish something bigger than we could see. You see, it would be through this king, King David, there would come another baby born in Bethlehem. This baby would not just be the king of Israel, but he would be the king of all kings. He would be the Lord of all lords. That this baby is the defender of orphans and widows. That this baby is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. That this baby is the kinsman redeemer of the world. Matthew 1 tells us that it is through Boaz and Ruth the Moabite, that there would be a direct lineage to the Lord Jesus Christ. And centuries after Boaz and Ruth, in the exact same field of Boaz, there would be shepherds. And those shepherds would be out watching their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord will appear. And the glory of the Lord will shine around them. Born to you this day in the city of David is Christ the Lord. In the same field where Boaz meets Ruth is the same field where the Lord through his angels appears to shepherds to pronounce the arrival of the king. Y'all, the whole thing is rigged. And what a reminder to you and to me that though Naomi and Ruth knew the depths of agony, they also got to experience the heights of celebration. Maybe today you're going through the valley of the shadow of death and you feel the weight of struggle. You're having a hard time putting one foot in front of the other. Sadness has your heart holding you down. Bitterness is settling in. I tell you this morning, lift up your eyes. Fix your eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Look unto Him. The Savior is coming for you. Your family Redeemer is coming for you. The King who cried in Bethlehem will also one day soon wipe away every tear from your eyes. Soon you will behold the Son. He is the unchanging sovereign, the majestic warrior, the prince of peace, the mighty counselor, the everlasting father, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one you can trust, the one you can bank your soul upon, the one who gave his life for you at Calvary, the one who walked on water, the one who raised the dead, the one who performed miracles, the one who will one day crush Satan under his feet, the one who knows you and loves you and calls you by name, the one who promises soon I'm coming back and I'm bringing you to myself. You bank your soul upon the Lord Jesus. You give him your heart and your life. You trust in him. He's your kinsman redeemer. He calls you to himself. And this pain that you feel is not permanent. To use Paul's words in 2 Corinthians, it's light and momentary. In light of the glory that's about to be revealed to us. So as you suffer, as you go through hardship and you experience the bitterness, please know there is a blessing that is coming. And that blessing has a name. And his name is Jesus.
and is yours. You can go from bitterness to blessedness through looking at the lineage of Boaz and Ruth and discovering that great king who came for you. Trust in him.